Eileen, the button wasn't pushed. So we'll start over here. So I think I would like to start here by just first uh, acknowledging that um, we're here. And there's a great mystery uh, that's actually all around us. And uh, somehow that uh, we should acknowledge that. Uh, It's the unknown that's actually manifesting itself constantly. And so I just simply want to start by naming that. Uh, The second piece I'd like to name is also um, that in this practice of uh, Dharma talks, uh, there's this ability to get lost in what is being said. And um, insight and voice and all this. And I just would like to ask you to put as much attention in your body uh, as you can in the listening. So it's actually part of how this all works in the sense of not separating out um, your practice of sitting and this practice of listening to a Dharma talk. The third uh, kind of acknowledgement here is just to recognize uh, kind of the bottom line here. That even though we sit with ourselves here, uh, that this work we're doing uh, of really uh, kind of turning ourselves inside out in some sense is actually uh, for the benefit of all beings. Uh, This is not uh, simply a narcissistic um, uh, practice, but actually a way that we turn ourselves inside out uh, so that we can approach uh, all beings uh, from a place of really uh, wakefulness and heartfulness. So having said that, I have a kind of a uh, that's kind of my acknowledgement is a kind of a piece I always like to bring up and particularly the first day and I actually read this many times is because I feel it's, um, it's there's a lot of seriousness here in the first day of kind of arriving and uh, kind of dropping in and boy the discomfort that happens I don't care how long you've been sitting that f- the first day is uh, actually very hard on the body so you need to have a lot of kind of uh, patience with yourself, Uh, self-acceptance, and just some just basic kindness uh, for uh, this this first day of arrival, of kind of getting here. So with that, I would like to read, uh, which I've been doing this year, just simply because it uh, maybe warms my heart, and every time I read it kind of uh, helps a little bit, and kind of bringing me, uh, what, here in some way, and and, uh, a little humor. And this is a piece from Tofu Roshi about uh, inhalation and exhalation, this uh, simple practice of being in the breath. Dear Tofu Roshi, when I meditate, I seem to exhale more completely than I inhale. And consequently, by the end of the meditation period, I feel quite deflated. What do you think I should do? 
This is from Prudence Bird Whistle. Dear Prudence, proper breathing technique is widely misunderstood. You are not alone in having trouble with it. From your letter, it sounds as though you may be making a common mistake. Breathing out more times than you're breathing in. <laughs> this is why we recommend counting breaths. Only by counting can you be completely sure you are exhaling and inhaling the same number of times. One of my students uses golf counters for this. With her left hand, she enumerates inhalations. With her right, she takes account of exhalations. At the end of the period, she checks to make sure the numbers on the two counters are the same. If there's any discrepancy, she takes an extra moment to even things up. <laughs> Adding the indicated number of exhalations or inhalations. But it's best to alternate whenever possible. <laughs> breathe in once, breathe out once. And then go all the way back to the beginning of the cycle and repeat. This is the basic principle of Zen and no different than with this practice. So, as we sit here and hopefully uh, stay abreast of our, if that's the right word, uh, of our inhalation and exhalations, I wrote you a little poem today that I would like to use to um, take this little journey uh, tonight in, in this talk. And it goes. Journeying into the deep forest, finding the broken mirror, my image reflected, shattering into 10,000 faces. Journeying into the deep forest, Finding the broken mirror, my image reflected, shattering into 10,000 faces. So, this journeying into the deep forest. It seems like in all kind of what archetypal stories of the journey, there seems to be this, well, sometimes it's uh, up some mountain somewhere or some deep forest, deep, dark forest. Uh, there is this kind of fearful initiate and sometimes known as a, you know, maybe an org or a, shaman or uh, some uh, mystical being. Um, that sends us out somehow to find something we have forgotten, lost, or misplaced. It is some kind of call 
to awakening. And just that, we've all kind of uh, have our stories of how uh, we sit here uh, this evening. And somehow I've gotten this deep call uh, to awaken. It's really this, uh, I really a sacred, uh, sometimes I think just a deep longing or need uh, for some kind of, maybe uh, it can be, you know, wholeness or uh, a, something of the spirit. Um, <clears throat> uh, this may be journey for you home. Uh, this Buddha nature that uh, somehow has called you. It's a mysterious pull. Uh, We all have kind of little pieces of beginning. I know that for me, I I was in, where I grew up in this little, the last couple years, in this little town in Switzerland, Montignola. And one of the kind of little heroes of the town who lived there was Hermann Hesse. So as a teenager, it gave me, even though I I never met him, but it was just the fact that there was this proximity uh, of this being. And for you, it couldn't have been, it couldn't be a person. Uh, It can be a book uh, that draws you uh, and begins to kind of um, what the kind of I was kind of seeing these little layers being taken off of this piece you may have lost or forgotten or um, misplaced somehow. And you can call those sometimes they're just kind of sometimes accidental encounters. Um, Sometimes we have to take journeys. Uh, Our deep forest may be more complex than that, where we have to take a journey into a foreign culture or um, that we're asked sometimes to go on a, a trip somewhere. And in that, we meet kind of an exotic world that's outside of our reality and kind of breaks our view for a moment of who we think we are. And we see that there is uh, this piece that may be missing within us and that we long to make contact with. Sometimes it's as simple as um, hearing an opera and hearing voices, some kind of almost uh, celestial calling uh, that again uh, asks you to kind of take a few of those veils off towards this connection, this journey home, this 
longing for wholeness. Uh, for our, this birthright of our kind of Buddha nature. There are a thousand gates that open us to kind of our own spirit and the spirit around us. And I know for me, one of the most powerful pieces when I came from Europe was I had met a young man in school there who um, was a great poet. And he used to write these wonderful songs and played a 12-string guitar. And and, um, he was from San Francisco. That was a big deal. So um, eventually, in 1966, I made it here. And one of the things in the first few months was he had been involved kind of in the uh, drug scene very heavily in the psychedelic scene, and, uh, but hadn't really stabilized himself. And one evening he came to me, and I was, um, had only been here, I don't know if I'd been here, maybe six weeks. And he said, I'm going to kill myself. And I remember we were at a pool table, and, and um, you know, I was almost 20 years old, and... Um, uh, I, I just, you know, it was something that bounced off me. I didn't understand. And the next day, he actually, he went down to the beach and he shot himself. And so sometimes, you know, I hope for a lot of you, it's just this ability to have great questions. Uh, for some of us, it's unexpected suffering. And other times, uh, somehow, it's uh, our original innocence kind of pops up. But for me, it was this unexpected suffering. And I remember one of the pieces was, was um, I think it's sometimes called survivor's guilt. Because a year before that, his, his friend, who had been Bishop Pike's son of San Francisco, bishop there, um, Jim had been at Oxford, and he had shot himself a year before that. And so suddenly it felt like somehow it was my turn in this kind of survival's guilt. And I remember how, in a way, it unleashed, uh, first of all, uh, that piece about um, really there wasn't any place left to go. And there was this other piece, though, uh, that said somehow that um, if I looked into the crannies, into the deep, dark place long enough, that there was some light there. I think in the late 60s, when I first went to Asia and I began to sit, um, I, have to, I have to say the truth about that. I wrote something that went, uh, I really misunderstood uh, what practice was about. Because I th- thought if I meditated hard enough, 
If I meditated hard enough, I could get rid of the pain. But what we learn in sitting here, once we've had this calling and we've kind of recognized this journey home, that it's not about actually pushing that pain away. Um, It's this willingness to actually acknowledge who we are and what it is that's happening uh, in us and around us. Uh, And not something actually to, in some ways, to gain or to get, but just to find out who it is that this is happening to. Journey. Journeying into deep forest. Finding the broken mirror. When you go into the deep forest and you get into that dark forest and you find this ogre or this shaman or this magician or uh, uh, magical being, there's usually some kind of interaction that happens uh, that usually is quite fearful or threatening to who you think you are. It's kind of a test. And uh, this initiate, at some point, uh, if you pass those tests, will give you a gift. And the gift itself, uh, in this case, is a broken mirror. And I know for myself, one of the wonders of this practice, I know the first, actually a few years, I don't think I really grasp um, the Buddhist teachings in their simplicity, and how there was really just one thing being simply taught here over and over. And the first one was simply this noble truth that um, through our ignorance, through our ignorance, we suffer. We suffer over and over again. We can look into ourselves and see that. We can look uh, in history. Uh, We can look in our immediate culture, within our immediate families, uh, in these relationships. And if you look close enough, this simple first noble truth uh, becomes very apparent and uh, is a tremendous gift to begin to, begin to um, first of all, to accept its part of the picture around us, how this is happening. I think we need that um, 
actually as a great part of ourselves uh, to open. I think so many times, uh, and, and I remember it in first, the first years here, and in, in, uh, kind of at least my Dharma experience here in the in the 70s, that uh, we didn't want to talk, uh, and there wasn't too much talk about suffering. We want to kind of skip over that as quickly as possible. But it is actually such an important uh, way that we change. Uh, our willingness to kind of uh, be in the world and uh, discover it. And um, I know, you know, the, it was interesting. I think when I first went to sit, my first retreat was like 40 days. And what was amazing about that was I sat down. I didn't think I had, I was just fine. I didn't have too much suffering. I didn't think. As I sat there longer and longer, I realized how I had built up so many things uh, to not acknowledge this truth in myself, in my story, and how things were. And so actually there was a tremendous amount of denial. That I simply had to... um, re-examine in my experience. And the thing is, this practice is our first our willingness to really name it and know it and see it around us. And then it's to recognize that there's a cause to it. There's a reason uh, that you suffer. And it is uh, actually, if there is the light, uh, it is actually our willingness to uh, begin to see and realize that. Uh, See how we do it. So this first one is simply the acknowledgement, the willingness to really take full responsibility for it in ourselves and the world around us. In a way, for me, it is still so noble because it is the peace that breaks our heart and opens us to so many possibilities uh, to recognize uh, that um, this is so many levels uh, of this uh, kind of tanah, this kind of clinging that happens, this uh, actually this ocean of craving for and against things that um, uh, prevent us from seeing clearly. I was looking through uh, 
just some books today, and I found this piece. It was great by Ajahn Sumedho on um, Tana, this great that the first noble truth is suffering, the second one is the cause of it. And this is just a little piece I'll read to you because I thought it was uh, so apropos. When we contemplate suffering, we find we are contemplating desire because desire and suffering are the same thing. Desire can be compared to fire. If we grasp fire, what happens? Does it lead to happiness? If we say, oh, look at that beautiful fire. Look at those beautiful colors. Oh, I love red, orange. They're my favorite colors. And then grasp it we would find a certain amount of suffering entering the body. And then if we were to contemplate the cause of that suffering, we would discover it was the result of having grasped that fire. On that information, we would hopefully then let the fire go. Once we let the fire go, then we know that it is something not to be attached to. This does not mean that we have to hate it or put it out. We can enjoy fire, can't we? It's, it's nice having a fire. It keeps the room warm, but we do not have to burn ourselves in it. So I think this is that wisdom of uh, recognizing first just what is it. You know, and I like this piece of fire uh, I had I was on a retreat once where <clears throat> I had this great uh, sexual desire for some, for someone, and this was kind of this big. It was like a huge piece, and then I had been in just prior to this retreat, and I'd also been in uh, kind of a tiff with someone, and I would sit there, and I would have these two kind of objects of uh, what experience come up. And one of them was this tremendous uh, wanting. And on the other was this tremendous kind of dislike and anger and aversion. And as I sat there, I would simply burn. First I would burn uh, with this fire of wanting. Then I would burn with this fire of aversion. And somewhere along, which is so wonderful about this practice, is there is a moment where we have what's known as an insight. I'm very slow at this, but it was suddenly an insight into these were similar body experiences. And that actually this is what the Buddha was pointing at, was this fire that... uh, actually drove me out of the present, either into wanting something or pushing it away. And that the moment itself was okay. It was fine. And so then was this recognition that, oh, I can't do much about the pain in my knees or my back or different parts of my body. Uh, how they act in the present. It's kind of this karmic formation that happens. But 
I do have a choice how I experience. It's big. It's a big insight. It's this piece called wisdom, having actually choice. And that in the center of our experience, uh, no matter what's going on, we can choose at any time. We can't change the pain, but we can change how we experience. And if we choose enough moments of this really non-grasping, the Buddha simply said that uh, there is this possibility uh, that we can have insight into the nature of non-grasping. And he simply called it Nibbana, uh, the putting out of the flame. Uh, freedom. And a lot of our practice here is first we're going to play the game of how we get caught and we suffer for it. From things from the past, things from the future, uh, our kind of uh, wants and uh, what could have been, you know, trying to change the past and influence the future in some way. And yet, we have this possibility of just staying for moments in the present and recognizing that you're enough, it's enough. And if there are enough of those moments, a continuity of those moments, Uh, there again this possibility of having a break in how we see, having really a deep insight uh, into the nature of actually um, freedom. But it's kind of tricky, this whole practice, in some ways, because um, somehow, uh, let's see if I can find this. Um, this is a nice little piece by, uh, from the Myth of Freedom by Chogyam Trumpa. The attainment of enlightenment from ego's point of view is extreme death the death of the self, the death of me and mine, the death of the watcher. It is the ultimate and final disappointment. Uh, so, I don't want to be too much about this, but this whole journey is actually our willingness to kind of get out of the way. And uh, yet the more uh, we kind of uh, get caught in ourselves, uh, the more difficult this path becomes. Uh, so I just say that as a, as a piece of... Um, uh, actually, it's a gift uh, to get out of our own ways and um, acknowledge uh, our own suffering and the suffering in the world 
and that there are many actions we can take. Um, that help us uh, minimize uh, in ourselves and in others uh, this conditioned self uh, that actually keeps us distant from uh, the experience of freedom. So just simply recognizing um, this mirror as uh, first uh, containing the truth of the conditioning itself, Uh, recognizing what causes the conditioning, and that you can free yourself of that conditioning, and that this process here is the direct fundamental practice that can um, actually take you to freedom. And in that, we also can recognize that this, there is a journey that we have to undertake. We just can't simply, uh, I wish, uh, it just happened, you know. Uh, So we have to take these kind of uh, steps on this path. Traditionally, it's right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, effort, mindfulness, um, concentration. But actually, uh, what I'd like to kind of do here, because it really... I think that can get kind of heady. It can be simpler than that. And this is uh, a piece from uh, Ajahn Chah, uh, the great late uh, uh, Thai forest master, about the path itself, and that uh, we actually don't need to go anyplace for that path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the truthfold Eightfold Path is within us. It's two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors. Examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. These are great lines. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. 
Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques, but it all comes back to this. Just let it all be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? So do you dare step out of your stories, step out of uh, these who we think we are, and just be uh, very free, uh, a very great practice of the path. So journeying into the deep forest, finding the broken mirror, which is really these simple, noble truths of the Buddha. Don't need to go anyplace else. My image reflected, shattering into 10,000 faces. My image reflected shattering into 10,000 faces. So seeing maybe the true nature It's not about you. Uh, It's about you getting out of the way. Uh, To see where I started this piece about the mystery. Uh, The mystery of the sun and the moon. Uh, The trees and the seasons and uh, this period of um, uh, what? uh, The dark moving towards the light, kind of coming to this apex, and our willingness to kind of sit down and be with ourselves, uh, kind of in our cocoon here. Uh, But ultimately, when you look so close, when you look so close, uh, it's really not you you're looking at. Uh, you're actually looking at all these 10,000 faces, which is all of humanity and all the things it does and doesn't do, uh, and that we are all part of that somehow. It is the kind of um, uh, the paradox here, to look so deeply for the self is actually to let it go, and then to notice uh, the nature uh, of this mystery around us. So I think I will leave you with this, just this journey into the deep forest, which you're all kind of undertaking at this point. 
And in many ways, you're finding this broken mirror. Uh, these uh, simple truths uh, that, uh, if really experienced, uh, this image in ourselves, it will shatter us into those 10,000 faces. This is from Mary Oliver, to kind of end. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, Wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each body, a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. So let's just sit for a moment. So on this first day of sitting, may your body find comfort and peace. May your mind find the breath. And may your heart quell and be moved. journeying into the deep forest, finding the broken mirror. My image reflected, shattering 
into 10,000 faces. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.